0: Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're exploring the genesis of China's thinking about sovereignty and how this shapes Chinese foreign policy today. Contemporary Chinese notions of sovereignty are deeply rooted in China's history, with the modern Chinese concept of sovereignty originating in the Qing Dynasty. And China's understanding of sovereignty, of course, has evolved, but it differs in important ways from Western conceptions of sovereignty. Today, questions of sovereignty are, of course, at the center of many of China's most pressing foreign policy challenges, from maritime disputes in the South China Sea to ongoing border disputes with India. And Chinese concerns about sovereignty also come into play in its approach to other issues, such as climate change and arms control. To discuss China's thinking about sovereignty, I am joined by Bill Hayton. Bill is an associate fellow with the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House and a journalist with the BBC. And throughout his career, Bill has focused on a variety of regions, not just the Asia-Pacific, but also Eastern Europe and Central Europe and the Middle East. And he has a new book, which has just come out in the UK and will soon be out in the United States. It's called The Invention of China. And it has a fascinating chapter on China's conception of sovereignty, which is why we've invited him to join us today. So thanks for agreeing to talk to us, Bill.
1: Well, thanks so much for the invitation, Bonnie. It's great to talk to you again.
0: In your forthcoming book, you discuss the origins of the term sovereignty, Zhu you know, in Chinese, particularly, of course, during the Qing dynasty. So summarize for us, how did this term come about? And how does its meaning differ from the Westphalian concept of sovereignty? Well, the word, the
1: Chinese word, juquan, which now means sovereignty, did exist in the distant past, but it's given a new meaning. It's taken as a translation for the English word sovereignty in the 1860s. And the man who does it is a guy called William Martin, who's an American Presbyterian missionary. Who's working with American diplomats, but also with Qing officials as a, an advisor and, and later a teacher? And decided that from both uh, these court officials and Western diplomats, the Chinese officials need an understanding of what Western governments think of when they talk about international law. And they choose, so the Americans in particular are particularly interested in, in a, a book called The Elements of International Law by Henry Wheaton, which had been published in 1836. And they choose this book as being a, an introduction. And it's William Martin, who has been a missionary and, and speaks Chinese, who decided with the translation, chooses which bits to translate, and has to invent all kinds of new words to find equivalents for the, the English terms. And he's the one that chooses Juquan, literally sort of meaning the, the power of the master as an equivalent for sovereignty.
0: So how did American engagement with the Qing court affect traditional Qing views of sovereignty and steer it towards accepting the norms of international law? And what are the lessons then for policymakers today from this?
1: Well, I think it's still an open question as to whether the Westerners ever did convince the Chinese court about the the merits of international law. Immediately, so this term was translated. The Qing court found an opportunity to use it when the Prussians opened fire on a Danish ship in the harbour in Tianjin as part because there was the Schleswig-Holstein conflict was taking place in Europe at the same time. And uh, the Chinese, to their amazement, wielded this thing about international law and said, you can't do these things in Chinese territorial waters. And not only did the Prussians apologize, but they paid compensation. So they, some of them at least realized that this mystical you know, text had some power. But at the same time, it was seen as a tool to manage foreigners with rather than anything that um, actually affect the way that China would behave. And I think it, they could sort of continue in this up until the, the Sino-Japanese War of 1895, when basically the Japanese, with military power behind them, wielded international law against them, and they were forced to, for example, you know, cede their interest in Taiwan. And at that point, I think the chain court, very end of 19th century, realized that they were going to have to grip with this international law concept, and it was going to change the way that they behaved. But they resisted it, I think, very much. Therefore, I think what we need to understand is that sovereignty comes to China in translation, and Chinese... Officials have been reluctant to accept principles of, of Western international law from the beginning. And I've always tried to kind of fill it with their own concepts. And I've been reluctant, I think, to embrace the idea of, in quotes, interference in international affairs. And this unease, I think, with the way that international law and questions of sovereignty arrived In China in the 19th century, that it was not an indigenous thing, but it was something that was forced upon them, and uh, quite a deep level of of reluctance to, to fully engage with it.
0: You write extensively about the methods the Qing court used to bolster its self image as the ruler of all under heaven. And you argue that, and this is a quote memories of the dynastic rituals of tribute still underpin ideas about political legitimacy in communist China. So can you give us some examples of these dynastic rituals and how are the memories of these rituals reflected in China's engagement with the world today?
1: Well, there's a lot of discussion about the tribute system, whether it was real, what form it took, whether the delegations that came to Beijing really believed in it. All these things are still open questions among historians. But I think there's no doubt that there was a world view that the imperial court saw its relations with its surrounding powers through this lens, whether those actually reflected reality is a moot point. And I'm going to take two examples. So that when the, the British court sends a delegation in, in 1793, the famous McCartney embassy that fails, the whole point was that the British were trying to seek equal trading relations with the Qing court. And yet the Qing court refers to this mission as a tribute mission. The British have come to lay down before the emperor, which was the whole point was that it wasn't that. And then the following year, the Dutch show up and they invent a fictitious, a non-existent king that's come to present his tributes to the emperor and they're accepted. Clearly the reality of the tribute system was not the same as what the imperial court thought it was. But I think nonetheless, the importance of the tribute system for the court was not really about foreign relations. It was much more about domestic legitimacy. And the emperor could basically say, look, all these people have come here to worship me or pay homage to me and accept their subordination to me. That means I have the mandate of heaven. You know, I have the right to rule. Potential domestic rivals also need to accept that I'm the ruler. And so I think you can sort of see, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that you know, when you have a Belt and Road Forum in Beijing and all these foreign delegations arrive and sit in you know, the Great Hall of the People and are preached to by Xi Jinping, that it's performing the same function, that it's a way of confirming the legitimacy of Xi Jinping, the Communist Party, and the People's Republic of
0: China in the same way. This term and concept that the Chinese used historically of Tianxia, All Under Heaven, is something that we don't see very much in Chinese writings today. But I guess you think that this is still a sort of an important concept for China. So how do they reconcile this historical concept of Tianxia with Western international law?
1: I think I think it's quite hard, really. I don't sort of see you know, a direct way that you can sort of relate these two together. I think there's a sort of Disagreements among Chinese scholars as to whether Tianxia can actually be a serious model for China's foreign relations. And I think there's, to some extent, some Westerners have looked at it and sort of thought, well, let's look for something indigenous here and, and authentically Chinese. And they've seized on, on this idea. Now, the idea of in Tianxia literally all under heaven is that the Imperial authority kind of radiates away from the person of the emperor in all directions. And uh, you know, everything in theory should be ordered by this, you know, the Confucian, if you like, way of, of doing things. And then there will be ritual and there will be tribute and so forth and peace. Whereas international law is fundamentally the opposite. Sovereignty was a way of thinking about power that didn't come down from heaven and was, actually, was earthbound and therefore was vested in states and, and was different between states and so forth. So actually, I think possibly if China is going to go down a sort of more fundamentalist attitude towards sovereignty, which about the state being in control of its territory and a lack of interference, in many ways, that's the opposite of Tianxia. You know, it's about saying that the emperor's rule will stop at the national boundary and all under heaven has a limit to it.
0: I know you've written quite a bit and done a lot of research on the South China Sea. So maybe you can talk a bit about how China thinks about sovereignty when it comes to the South China Sea and how that differs from how other claimants think about sovereignty. Well, I
1: think what I might do is then to understand the South China Sea is is push us forward a bit into the 20th century. It's sovereignty, but it's also a sense that territory becomes an emotional Kind of totem if you like that claim in the south china sea develops really in the 1930s at a time when china is in conflict with japan literally in conflict but also in a sort of diplomatic conflict with france and the islands in the south china sea sort of become a, an emblem a place where the country can plant a flag and we're really talking about the Paracel islands at this point and they've become an emotional cause And this is a time when the new republic is trying to get its citizens to really believe in the republic and to become patriotic and have an interest in preserving the state. And they deliberately set out to create a sense of humiliation about previous territories that have been lost in the past and a pride in a state that's going to go and get this territory back. And so they instruct historians and geographers, academics, teachers to really lay this on thick with school pupils and in the media to try and make territory an emotional cause. And it's exactly this moment that the South China Sea Islands have become emotive in the 1930s, between 1933, and they take on a kind of a spiritual value. And I think that's the legacy that we have today, this idea that they become a marker of national pride and sovereignty, and it's interesting that I think you know compare that with, say, Vietnam, where they didn't feel a sense of humiliation at this time. For them, as a pop- in terms of popular opinion, it's not until the 1970s when China defeats what was then South Vietnam in a battle in the Paracels, and then it also becomes an emotional question for the Vietnamese. So it's almost as if. These states have to feel this sense of humiliation, China in the 1930s and Vietnam in the 1970s, for it to become a national and emotional cause. And it's never been that, for example, really in the Philippines or in Malaysia or Indonesia. So it's never had quite the same emotional pull.
0: So the concept of sovereignty in your book you put in the context of present era And one of the issues that you talk about is the 2009 UN Climate Change Conference. And you note that the Chinese delegation was unwilling to accept U.S. demands that all commitments should be measurable, reportable and verifiable. So why were these demands unacceptable to China? How does that relate to these concepts of sovereignty? It's a
1: really good question. And I think we don't have an account from the Chinese side. But when you compare what the Chinese government wasn't willing to agree in 2009 with what it was prepared to agree in 2015, the the big change was in the 2009 conference, it was all about inspection and everything being open to international verification. And those ideas just disappear from the 2015 the Paris Agreement. So it has to be a question of China's unwillingness to have its commitments inspected and these were commitments which the country said it was willing to sign up to and obviously china takes climate change seriously i mean it has taken significant steps to reduce its emissions made these various commitments so if it's willing to do that why is it not willing to have them inspected and i think it the only explanation that makes sense to me is this utter unwillingness to be inspected, to be verified, to be publicly questioned, and potentially, I guess, humiliated by an international inspection coming in and saying, you're not living up to your expectations. The Chinese authorities want to have the ability to manage that public presentation of information about China's behavior, and they don't wish to be subject to some kind of uh, supranational inspection agency with the ability to criticize the ruling
0: party. So this can obviously have relevance to other issues as well. And we know that the Trump administration has tabled a proposal for China to be included in strategic nuclear arms reduction talks with Russia. And U.S.-Russian agreements, of course, have had very strict and clear arrangements for inspections and verification. One of the issues then going forward might be how Chinese conceptions of sovereignty apply to the issue of arms control. So is this something that the US should take into account? Should it have a way of addressing these concerns? Do you think ultimately, because of China's very strict and historical conceptions of sovereignty, that there's just no way that they will agree to these kinds of inspections and verification?
1: That would be my first thought. Their obsession with sovereignty would make them extremely reluctant to agree to such things. I can think the only way that maybe this could be presented would be if the US were to use the analogy, you know, that this was done with the Soviet Union when you had sort of inspection regimes and open skies inspection and that kind of thing. If there was some kind of trade off whereby the United States formally accepts China as a superpower and says you are now at the level you know, that the Soviet Union was in the 1980s, and that we are now equal states, and it can concede the ground, you know, to this uh, other Chinese slogan of a new type of great power relations, which the US has been reluctant to do so up until now. And then maybe that the sense that China and the US are sharing this parity, and this is what superpowers do, then maybe. My first thought is that the idea of this kind of inspection would be treated in exactly the same way as that climate change proposal, which was rejected and refused.
0: So you relate this concept of sovereignty in your book to present modern day foreign policy concepts like the community of common destiny for mankind. So can you explain what that means? What do you think Xi Jinping has in mind when he says that there should be a community of common destiny for mankind. And what does it tell us about how he thinks about China's role in the international community? It's a
1: fascinating phrase. Sometimes it started off being called community of common destiny, but the, the phrase seems to have shifted, evolved slightly. Sometimes it's now the community of shared future, which I think Chinese think sounds a bit more friendly. And it's a phrase that, I mean, for example, uh, when Xi Jinping was talking to the UN General Assembly in September just gone, I think he used the phrase three times in his, in his short speech. So clearly he has some investment in it. I've just been reading a book by a, a British-based academic, Jin Han Zeng, where he talks about slogan politics, and he uses this as an example of how China develops these foreign policy ideas often as kind of empty vessels waiting to be filled. And then they sort of, in effect, the academic and the policy-making communities, you know, then come up with ideas that can somehow, you know, make this relevant. And the, the actual term in Chinese was originally used in the context of Taiwan. The two, you know, parts of Chinese conception, you know, have a shared future, a common destiny. But it's become a much more general term. And then on the face of it, it you know, what could you possibly object to? about shared future common destiny, this is the sort of one world approach. For me, what it seems to encode is this attitude towards foreign relations where states are not banding together to form alliances. I think China is absolutely hostile to the idea of states forming alliances. And Xi Jinping himself mentioned this in his UN General Assembly speech in September. He specifically criticized the formation of alliances and blocs. But that's how small and medium-sized states protect their interests against big powers. I think the idea that we're seeing from China is that there will be individual states will have to stand or fall on their own. And therefore, obviously, if you're a big state, then you have much more influence on the world stage. You can approach smaller states, and your leverage is so much greater. Whereas when European states want to band together or Southeast Asian states want to band together, it seems China's actually hostile to that and it wants, doesn't want to be faced by organized coalitions. It wants one-on-one thing. So this is what I think is concerning about the idea of the community of shared future, community of common destiny. It seems to provide cover for a hierarchical system of the world, whereby you'll have a big state which will be able to kind of push other small states around and reorder some kind of sense of hierarchy. We can argue about whether the tribute system was real or not in the past. If there's an idea in Beijing that this was a natural order that did exist in the past, whether or not that's true, if they believe it, then are they thinking that this is a model going forward as to how China is going to order its international relations, that it is going to become a hierarchical system in Asia, and that we'll be able to use this historical memory, in inverted commas, as a way of justifying it and saying, well, this is how it was, you know, all the way up to the arrival of the Europeans in the 19th century, we're just going back to an old model. And so therefore, I think it's quite dangerous to sort of have this view of the past, which uncritically accepts this idea that that is the natural order, because I think there's a tendency to try and see things like that now in Beijing.
0: So let me close by asking you uh, maybe a broad question about your research for this book. Um, You obviously dug into a lot of material. What surprised you the most? What did you uncover that you didn't expect to find?
1: What I found on this chapter, and specifically this chapter about sovereignty, and the role of Americans (laughs) in introducing sovereignty to China. You know, coming as a Brit, I'm used to thinking about, you know, the Opium War and the British role in China in the 19th century. But you have these quite important but very little-known figures in the late 19th century. You have Ulysses S. Grant playing a mediating role in the crisis over the Ryukyu Islands. A former Civil War veteran, a guy called Robert Pethick, who had gone out to China to seek his fortune, and he ends up as the Chinese consul, but also as an assistant to Li Hong Zhang, who's the major foreign policy figure of the end of the Qing Empire. John Foster, grandfather of John Foster Dulles, you know, who's a lawyer, who plays a key role of the Treaty of Shimonoseki. William Shufeld, who was a key player in opening up Korea. So actually, in the four real foreign policy crises at the end of the 19th century, these Four Americans, actually play a really key role in introducing in a very practical way what sovereignty means to the rest of the world, uh, to the Qing court. And uh, discovering these you know, little known historical figures and tracing out their stories and the connections between them, that was fascinating.
0: Well, I do hope that all of our listeners will go out and buy the book. It's currently available in the UK, not yet out in the United States, but will be soon. We've been talking with Bill Hayton, who is an associate fellow with the Asia program at Chatham House in the UK, of course, as well as a journalist with the BBC. And thanks so much for joining us today, Bill.
1: Thanks so much, Bonnie. It's great to talk to you.